Welcome to the Progress City Radio Hour. My name is Michael Crawford, your humble host. With me, as always, is my brother, Jeff. Uh, Jeff, how are you? I'm less humble. Look at me. Uh, no, I'm, <laughs> I'm doing good. I am, uh, you know, thinking Disney thoughts, thinking about some Epcot. I wish, I wish I could go back to the perfectly manicured robotic vacuum or vacuum robotically mowed lawns, little, uh, speakers in the bushes or mm-hmm. just right there on the lawn whisk of a monorail above you at, at the evening with the little lights down on the pass on those pink paths i'm, I'm feeling it i feel yeah. like i'm there little breeze blowing a little area music ambiance yeah yeah and those uh old-fashioned john hinch selected light stanchions throwing right. out some light on your path ahead that sounds nice yeah what about you where are you at uh, i'm feeling feeling the flow man after yeah. after that intro that that's uh that's a good place to be mentally I'll, I'll i'll go there gladly but yeah feeling the flow because i mean here we go we're talking about it this episode talking about the universe of energy we're still talking epcot it's talking about a very big part of that original future world lineup universe of energy yeah this was one baked into the pie very early and it stayed very late so you know it was never the headliner but a core part of what they were doing you know i feel like goofy walking up in that little handout that they did the little (laughs) universe of energy is just what's going on here that little fountain in the front yeah yeah riding on sunshine man reflecting the sun yeah, yeah, you're right. This was never the the headliner, but it was sort of the veteran player that lasted and uh, veteran utility player in there lasting through the years, uh, only recently, sadly, gone, but really stuck with the park for a good long time. People love their dinosaurs, and you would always see the dinosaurs on any kind of Epcot preview. It was that there. True. So they that were is always true. showing them off, and and of course, much more than that in this pavilion. A very, uh, you know, all of these very technologically advanced for the time. This one, I feel like particularly so. Yeah, uh, all the all the film elements were pushing boundaries, and as you say, the dinosaurs were front and center in any promotional. Any promotional booklets, promotional video, I can see the B-roll in my head, you know, just of those dinos fighting it out. And the technology of it, all the special effects of the diorama itself were a big feature. All the Mm -hmm. lava, which they were quite proud of, and uh, those sort of effects. So we've got a lot to talk about on that front, but... Before we begin, we have something truly special and different. Yes, and not even related to the theme. It's a rare occurrence for us. We're going outside the theme, but it's, uh, you know, it's kind of a breaking news uh, out of Progress City here. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it definitely has nothing to do with our theme this this episode. Um, and But how could we not use this? When we were sent from our friend Foxy over at Passport to Dreams Old and New, who managed to get her hands on 
a record, <laughs> a, a, a wonderful, wonderful uh, record by none other, Jeff, than Stratton and Christopher, the Saltwater Express. That's right. Friends of the podcast. You may remember them from our 50th anniversary celebration where we played their uh, grad night song and even, you know, spoofed it, did our own version. Uh, they are beloved uh, features of the early vacation kingdom at Walt Disney World and quite a history uh, in Central Florida and with Disney. Absolutely. Within and without Disney, they were mm -hmm. the local fixtures. And apparently, at some point, uh, sat down and recorded a single. And I don't, I, you know, I don't know if they ever recorded more than this. Of course, they, there was the novelty forty-five arrive alive on five thirty-five, yes. yes, which was cool. propaganda to get the uh, local, state, and county authorities to widen State <laughs> Road five thirty-five for Eight, cast members coming song. in to work yeah. at Disney World. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I did look into them a little bit more about, because I was like, what, did they record more than this? Uh, and and predominantly, they were a live act. I've heard them compared to Simon and Garfunkel combined with the Smothers Brothers, Michael. I just, uh, this is one act I wish had been yeah. recorded somehow, because I would love to see what this act was they they would perform and at the polynesian over mm -hmm. where captain cooks is now if it still is captain cooks is it something else now i think i think it's captain, captain cooks, cooks. Yeah. yeah somehow uh, they would perform there at nights when it was kind of a little a little cozy getaway with cocktails and things they would perform at the village in its early days mm -hmm. at a venue called the chummery yes one of the great all-time names and they would perform at little cozy little night spots throughout Disney World and uh, throughout Orlando. And uh, just just this whole little act that I am fascinated with. Yeah, so I, I found out that they, uh, so it was Bob Christopher, Gary Stratton, uh, and Bob was working with Bobby Gentry, playing with Bobby Gentry. And uh, Gary was working on a USO tour and they got hooked up by the same agent and they met in Las Vegas and a hotel there gave them the name Saltwater Express. And they went on to tour Hawaii, Canada, and a USO tour in Vietnam and Thailand, uh, and then went to Disney world. So what a interesting, and they went all over the place, but, um, they did record the, uh, Pooh for president song in 1976. And that sold 300,000 copies, Michael. Wow. Fantastic. Um, I read some of this in a recap because in 1977, they kind of shook it up a little bit and they moved from Captain Cook's to Limey Jim's Pub and Show Lounge at the Hyatt House Hotel in Orlando, where they got put on staff. Uh, so <laughs> they, they brought their their brand of mellow music, quote, perky people picking and slightly raunchy humor, Michael. Ooh. With, so a, they, with those Disney, the Disney collars off, they could right. get a little salty. They could get free. But yeah, they never recorded much. And this was supposed to be a part of an LP called Friends that was released in 1986. And 
according to the Orlando Sentinel, they were signed by Columbia Records, but I see no evidence of the Friends LP being released. Only the single oh, uh, seems to have survived. So maybe they got the label got cold feet. I don't know what happened. Maybe it it got out. I I don't see any evidence of that anywhere. I only see this single which we are so lucky to have. And thanks to Foxy for giving us that. But yeah, this was a kind of later thing. And and they were interviewed in the Sentinel about it. And we're like, well, we thought we were surprised that people wanted to hear us recorded. So <laughs> I guess it, it's so funny because I work in a recording studio and that seems to be everybody thinks they need to be recorded before they play a show. But this was the yes. inverse. Right. They'd been playing for however many years. And you'd think right. with all those years of, you know, vacationers coming in and out, not to mention locals who would have seen their act, you would Mm -hmm. think they'd realize they had an audience for sure. Right. Well, you know, we've, obviously we want to talk to these guys. So if anybody out there listening knows Stratton and or Christopher, please get in touch with us at podcast at progresscityusa.com because we got to talk to these guys. Uh, yeah, I mean, that would be the, the best Christmas ever to be talk to talk to them about a Polynesian in the early 70s, the chummery and mm-hmm. uh, the industry. Come on. Yeah. And a line. What was it? Limey. <laughs> Limey Jim's pub and show lounge. Limey Jim's. Yeah. yeah oh, that place man. was smoky. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I guarantee you, <laughs> guarantee you. So what we're going to do is uh, we've got two tracks. <laughs> oh, it's fun. Um, we're going to play one for you right now at the top of the episode, and we'll play the other at the very end of the episode after we're done talking about Universe of Energy <laughs> <laughs> and uh, get all our get all our uh, rigor roll out of the way, and then we'll play you a second track. So. Uh, Jeff, shall we, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to decide which, I don't know which is the A side and which is the B side, but I think we'll start off with a number called Mama, You Can't Give Me No Whippin'. As a young boy, my mama used to make me walk the line, even then as now. Women were a weakness of mine In grade school I was a mess Just pulling up some little girl's dress Teacher sent me home from school with a witch Mama said, bad boy, go get me that switch Mama, you can't give me no weapon If staying out all night Mama, you can't give me no weapon I'm old enough to know wrong from right Mama, you can't turn me on your knees Embarrassing to a man like me Mama thinks that I've got something that the girls like Mama think I might have something that the girls like Must have been about 13 when this feeling came over me Started learning how to talk the girls into a date with me Sneak them out on the line of the moon Slip them up into my bedroom Mama catches there without a stitch She'd say, bad boy, go get me that switch Mama, you can't give me no weapon Just for staying out all night Mama, you can't give me no weapon I'm old enough to the wrong from right Mama, you can't turn me over your knees Embarrassing to a man like me Mama, 
and Mama Don't Whip Little Buford. Or... I, it, it jumped jumped to the forefront of my mind. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, never too late for Mother's Day. We missed it just slightly, but, you know. I know. We, we, we're recording this in the wake of Mother's Day, and both of these songs have a yes. maternal aspect <laughs> to them. So certainly. Certainly do. There's a, a theme well, <laughs> to the saltwater vibe, I guess. What a treat. This is, uh, yeah. Sounds of the, sounds of the past. That's right. Just uh, can imagine yourself enjoying a little, uh, little tummy warmer down there in Captain Cook's little Mm. cocktail lounge and clinking glasses and candlelit nights there in Polynesian. Finishing the electrical water pageant, looking for something to do. Go down and see these guys. Yeah. Here's some, uh. Some little saucy anecdotes, maybe. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. It's the 70s. Uh, Jack Tripper strolls in. Yes, absolutely. Well, uh, I think we should turn to our theme. You know, we're we're off the map here. We should get back to, uh, you know, there's some important issues we have to discuss here. How are we going to manage our energy needs in the 21st century, Michael? Well, yeah, I mean, you think all these people coming to listen to the Saltwater Express worrying about, you know, paint at the pump, yeah. so to speak, worrying about those long lines at the gas stations while they uh, wait to go see Stratton and Christopher. And in the wake of that, Disney knew that energy was at the forefront of of all things as it continues to be. So, uh, yeah, why don't why don't we look at that? Why don't we explore the universe of energy. Even though 
Unlike most corporations that participated in Epcot, Exxon was relatively new, at least in name. Originally part of Standard Oil, Standard Oil of New Jersey, or Jersey Standard, would be spun off in 1911 when the Supreme Court dissolved the Standard Oil Company. Jersey Standard would market itself as Esso in many states, a phonetic spelling of Standard Oil, and Humble in others, but for both they used a tiger in their advertising in the 1950s. According to Exxon, Esso had used the tiger as far back as the early 1900s as a mascot for Esso in Norway, and I have no cause to not believe them. Motorists were urged to put a tiger in their tank, and a lot of the logo, colors, and marketing material looks rather familiar. They also had another company called Inco. So, I mean, I think it's clear why the Epcot project would appeal to them in name alone. <laughs> yeah, they had they had plenty of abbreviations <laughs> and uh, names already. That you call it I Epco? never thought about S-O being a, a phonetic spelling of standard oil. I know. S-O. All right. All That's, right. They're sassy. Yeah. I always have been really confused as to why that happened if they were like who was who and uh but I, I now i know it was a result of a supreme court case this one in 1937 it seems other standard oil descendants or whatever the baby bell term is for them objected to the use of the name so in certain states hence why the company would use humble or inco or whatever they chose finally jersey standard decided to change all their names in the united states to be consistent which makes sense i mean why not jersey standard i guess too geographic i don't know why not why not humble humble that's right i like oh. humble well this this because growing up you would hear of esso but we didn't have esso so i was always really confused yeah about this. yeah and you would see some old esso stations sometimes yeah um, maybe it's uh yeah, they wanted their, their names to be consistent. Maybe it was because uh, the fact that they found out the Inco meant stalled car in Japanese. Womp womp. <laughs> but Exxon was eventually picked out of over 10,000 other options because it meant nothing. And an exhaustive search realized that no one was using the term at all. A hilariously top secret effort was put in place to come up with the name a committee codenamed Nugget with two T's, which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> Operation Nugget. Why? Uh, they would test the final 16 names, even taking over an empty airfield in South Carolina for executives to drive by mocked up Exxon signs at varied speeds. What? <laughs> slow, slow down. No, speed up. Uh, yeah, that looks good. Uh, you got to see it at 35. It's better. Um <laughs> Finally, and shockingly, in 1972, SO was rechristened Exxon just 10 years before they would sponsor the University of Energy at EPCO. I mean, EPCOT. That is, I had no idea it was so recent, but it makes sense because Exxon is a very 70s feeling name, I guess. Right. Compared right. to Essel. Exxon's parent company, Standard Oil, was on board at the 1893 Chicago World's Fair with a display of oil mining techniques and stacks of oil barrels and lamps. Thrilling! Oh man, how do you you know how do you market an oil company? Is the question at these things. <laughs> But by 1933, at the Century of Progress, Standard Oil of Indiana was right in the mix of the Travel and Transportation Building. An amazing structure that looked kind of like the Cirque du Soleil building at uh, Disney Springs. It's, oh, really? Wow. Uh, yeah, kind of cool-looking building. It was breathable 
a breathable building, they called it, um, whatever that means. In the dome of the building, Standard Oil of Indiana installed a giant four-story, 24-ton crown, like with a cross at the top and everything. I, I still don't understand why it was a crown, but it would rise 40 feet off the floor and have an array of lights and 24 rotating speakers and four projectors on the top, all controlled by the controller phone. A giant robot brain, as popular mechanics said, in another room, which would send signals to four operators in the crown. <laughs> so this, a giant dome with a huge 24-ton crown that rose up 40 feet off the floor. <laughs> I don't understand the symbolism at work here. I don't either. It's oil king. I don't, yeah, I don't either. <laughs> the symbolism is very, very confusing. Holy the, Roman emperor oil. Yeah. Uh, the show itself would be a history of oil and man, said Popular Mechanics. Quote, the show begins with especially composed music. As the overture closes, movie projectors throw on the screens a whirling pattern of light, which resolves itself into the word oil, seeming to burst in the spectator's face. No! <laughs> uh, Standard Oil and seemingly every other oil company throughout the fair made maps of Chicago and the fair for keepsakes. And in that, they described the show as, quote, the story of a lowly raw material that remade the industrial world, changed our social and political organization, and became a world necessity. Thrilling. As grand and perhaps life-changing as this presentation may have been, another oil company may have had the ticket to the hearts of the children and fun seekers at the fair, Sinclair, just three years prior, had begun advertising with dinosaurs in 1930 as, quote, according to one of their publications, all the conditions for producing the best crude oil ever generated occurred during the time of the dinosaur. Hmm. In fact, dinosaurs were a fairly new phenomenon of study, relatively speaking. The first full-scale dinosaur sculptures appeared in 1854 at the behest of Richard Owen, who coined the term dinosaur a few years earlier. And those were at the Crystal Palace in London. Uh, these have been preserved, and you can still see them today at the Crystal Palace Park in London. And they are fairly incorrect. It's pretty interesting to see how little they knew at the time. <laughs> been well, that's like interesting. I need to preserved. Look yeah, it's wild. Yeah. Um, a guanodon, and it, yeah, but very nice. And they've been like uh, historically preserved now. So. Oh, that's neat. Yeah. But cool. they're put together wrong. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Just randomly placed bones. Right. Uh, by 1933, the science had progressed and Sinclair had planned an exhibit of one acre of a primordial scene featuring lots of full-scale dinos, some of whom moved. The dinosaurs were sculpted by one P.G. Allen of Hollywood, who had worked in the movies, but perhaps more excitingly for us was a citrus man. Alan seemed to have the corner on major citrus events in Southern California and frequently would do interior <laughs> citrus thematic work for the Valencia Orange Show, which took place in Orange County, including Anaheim in the 1920s. Imagine that scene, Michael. Yeah, I want to go to the Valencia Orange Show. That sounds like I a happening. Oh, yeah. Sinclair exhibit was a huge hit, drawing over a million visitors per month and really helping Dinomania become a phenomenon around the country. With the thirst for all things Dino growing, Sinclair would A, copyright the name Dino, which I had no idea, 
and B, began publishing books on dinosaurs as resources for schools and libraries, consulting notable paleontologists and experts in the field. The Sinclair Dinosaur Book would be reprinted over and over, selling hundreds of thousands of copies, and be worked on by illustrator James Allen and scientist Barnum Brown, who incidentally discovered the T-Rex. He was a bit of an iconoclast, also consulted on Fantasia, by the way. Oh, wow. That is amazing. He he is a real interesting character. Brown convinced Sinclair to participate in dinosaur excavations and contributed to a dig that uncovered over 4,000 dinosaur skeletons, which was, I'm sure, the largest at the time. It was a major event uh, when it happened. In 1939, for the New York World's Fair, the oil companies teamed up for a petroleum exhibit. This was in the production section of the fair and was highlighted by a 199-foot-high oil derrick outside the building. Oh, jeez. It was a working derrick that had a crew of trained workers who uh, just were working on it all day, I guess. That is enormous. (laughs) Yes. It's interesting, and that's another interesting building. It kind of looks like that... uh, yeah, the new Smithsonian uh, African American Museum. It's kind of like the oh, wild, staggered. They also had a model refinery in operation, a petroleum garden, including a map of the United States with all the oil production system mapped out. But before you think it's all dry, you're missing the film. Yes, luckily there was a 20 minute motion picture called Pete Roleum and His Cousins. <laughs> This was the first credit of director Joseph Losey and would depict a clan of oil drops and their leader, Pete. Annoyed by a heckler, they quit serving humankind, shut down the world economy, and proved the importance of petroleum. Uh, The film also weaves in the story of petroleum in America from the pioneer's days to the present. So here's a bit of that. Oil turns the wheels of industry, pleasure, comfort. It cools and heats, builds cities, makes a paradise on Earth. Very simple. Production costs, oil derricks, refineries, tank cars, pipelines. Service stations, where you get your gas and oil. Well, the fellows who work in the oil industry have to be paid. And hustle and strength have we with the spirit of modernity. We can laugh at Tarzan's and compare with oil cans. Oh, we turn the wheels of industry. That is an interesting film, Michael. Yes, it is. We might is. have to show that on uh, our live stream or some other. Oh, yeah. We'll need to do that. It's I love the old trade film trope of people complaining about something and then it being threatened to be removed from humanity right? forever. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Well, you'll see how important it is. No oil. Yeah. That is. The 30s were a different time. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Yeah. Of course, in 1955, Disneyland would open. As many of you well know, Tomorrowland was desperately late in development and construction. 
One of the more visible sponsors at the time was Richfield Oil, and they would sponsor two attractions in Disneyland's Tomorrowland, Autopia and an exhibit called The World Beneath Us. I wish I could have seen this one. Me too. This was one of the many shows and exhibits in Tomorrowland that was an entree into Disney working with their sponsors to present a corporate ad in a creative way. And there's something different about the Tomorrowland and future world versions of this. I mean, like in Main Street, you know, it's it seems like it was very seamless for them to do it in Main Street and even, you know, Frontierland, these kind of pastiche sponsor tie-ins. But the Tomorrowland future world things are a real sensitive, you know, for it not to feel too much just like a commercial, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, on Main Street and in Frontierland, you had like stores that would sell. I mean, it would make sense on a Main Street area or in a Frontierland area for like like the Pendleton wool stuff. Right. I right. mean, that made stuff that made sense for an item to be sold in a store like that in that place and time. But in Tomorrowland, like, what are you going to do? Sell a sell a gallon of oil to somebody? I mean, you right. have to really like stretch to come up with a justification for it. Right. I mean, this was like I said, it was a proving ground for what Future World would become. These clearly came out of a World's Fair model in these early Tomorrowland uh, iterations. Yeah, it's a little, uh, and some of them have a little trade show feel that you know later go on to. F- inform interventions <laughs> yes very like much the, so. the bathroom of tomorrow feels very interventionsy but the world beneath us was somewhat ambitious in certain respects uh, guests would enter into a room that would show a stylized cross section of the earth they could view the inside of a volcano and other wonders from there guests would view a 12 minute film produced by animators at disney and cinemascope that profiled, you guessed it, Man in Oil. I wish I could have seen this. I, mean, I know. This needs to make it out some way or the other. Yeah. Uh, there was much more. This was done in a very modern style for Disney. It featured a little professor character called Professor Rich Field. Get it? That's also notes of interventions. Rich Field. As well as a little fun characters representing gas, oil, and water there. I like it. Oh, yeah. Uh, there were booklets titled In the World Beneath Us, What Happens? You could get for free at the exhibit. They had still shots from the movie and riveting text. Here's a, here's a sample of that text. Wealth that is created by oil production is new wealth that spreads out to provide more goods and services for everyone. Teamwork in the oil fields means a higher standard of living for all. Think about it when you spend that dollar. Oh, boy. Hmm. Free money, folks. Food for thought. New wealth. There are some disturbing pictures of, there's one of a can of oil in a heart. I guess it's the heartbeat of the economy. (laughs) Even more disturbing sight of a cornucopia uh, with oil being poured in it, reading California's economy and standard of living. (laughs) Oh, no. Other images include a lot of mammoths, and you had to get some dinosaurs in there. So, yeah, yeah, pretty cool little presentation, I bet. A little, you know, animating in CinemaScope in the fifties. Disney had a pretty good track record of that. With yeah, that made in the Tramp. Really intrigued to see it. Yeah, absolutely. 
Uh, disturbing oil lobbying aside, the true highlight of the world beneath us was a giant diorama depicting the city of Los Angeles, guess what encounter. This would actually be in the same theater, an 840-square-foot model of 450 square miles of Los Angeles, uh, the whole basin, kind of. Uh, after the movie ended, the model would come to life, rising to reveal a moving oil-producing area by Long Beach and an underground dome underneath it that would rise up where you could see the world beneath us. Ooh. This was extraordinary technology for the time. As a projection was both on a dome and a sort of semicircular surface, meaning all different manner of new projectors were tried out and animators had to distort and test their animation to make it play on particular surfaces. Uh, pretty interesting early experiments in projection mapping. Kind yeah, of. that's totally what it is, really. I read about this in like a camera trade magazine they had written an article about it so it was interesting pretty impressive at the time and they were kind of small projectors that had to put into a small place so they could rise up with this model so and all for an industrial exhibit still pretty impressive right right Uh, as guests left the park and wanted to make a contribution to their own well-being by contributing to california's economy They could grab a gallon or two of Richfield gas at their modern service station adjacent to the Disneyland Hotel, get their state-of-the-art leaded gasoline and be on their way. But I do wish I could have seen the service station. It looked pretty cool. Ultra modern. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for the 1964 World's Fair, Sinclair would be back in a big way and not only bringing their dinosaurs back to the fair, but supplying the fair with gasoline. These service stations, two in the parking lots and one at the marina in the fair, would be profiled in the thrilling film Sinclair at the Fair. But even before leaving the huge parking area and starting on the trip through the fair, a familiar name greets the visitors. And below the name, the most advanced in ultra-modern service stations, designed and built by Sinclair, especially for the World's Fair. The eye-catching circular station is surrounded by three circular pump islands. Each island has two orbiting satellite gasoline pumps and a central customer service cabinet. Pumps roll to the customer's car as if by magic. This marvel is a first in the oil industry. A World of Wonders by Sinclair, the exclusive retail supplier of all petroleum products sold at the World's Fair. But not everybody comes to the fair by car. One of the outstanding features of the World's Fair is this modern marina, the largest on the eastern seaboard, equipped to handle a thousand boats at regular berths and at the many offshore moorings. In addition to private boats, Visitors also come by speedy hydrofoils. These run on a regular schedule from New York City. A feature of this marina is an ultra-modern floating service station, a completely new concept in marine service designed by Sinclair. Boat customers are served the way they like to be served, at sea. Another example of pioneering by Sinclair. Man, I just, uh, the marina aspect of the 64 World's Fair is is pretty great. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, Overlooked. Yeah. 
For the Dinorama <clears throat> exhibit, sculptor Lewis Paul Jonas, who had sculpted many animals for various museums around the country, was assisted by a number of paleontologists, including our friend Barnum Brown, the guy who discovered the T-Rex. Uh, this would be his last work, and unfortunately he would pass away before the exhibit opened. Statues of nine different dinosaurs would dot a lush landscape with all sorts of movements, quite real. <laughs> but in a stunt that resembled the pirates going down the Santa Ana freeway from Wed, the dinosaurs had to get to the fair by barge. The dinosaurs traveled down the Hudson River in a preview that made its way into local papers with the headline, Giant Dinosaurs Seen on Hudson Headed for City. Today's the day. Millions of people in skyscrapers, on commuter trains, and highways along the Hudson, on ships and planes, on docks and bridges will see a sight to amaze even sophisticated New Yorkers <laughs> as nine dinosaurs sail majestically around Manhattan Island. And sure enough, you could look up the times the dinosaurs would pass your location and see them pass by. I love that they missed to mention the sophisticated New Yorkers, Michael. Yeah. Well, yeah. You gotta... <laughs> We know our audience, you sophisticates. That's right. A big highlight of the Sinclair exhibit were the Moldorama machines where you could make your own dinosaur in real time to take home. These really took off at the affair, and you can still find them in museums across the country. The yeah, Moldoramas. these pop up on eBay from time to time, and I'm always mm -hmm. very tempted. Mm -hmm. Speaking of museums across the country, you can still find most of the dinosaurs that were used at the fair uh, for this exhibit at museums across the country. They immediately went on tour all over, showing up in shopping centers and other places across America, and were eventually divvied out to pop up all over. The Dinosaur Valley State Park in Texas inherited the T-Rex and Brontosaurus fiberglass statues. Dino, of course, was a true prize, the Brontosaurus. That is, you know, when you think about things always amaze me when you think about discoveries and science stuff that really isn't that old. Like, mm -hmm. like the fact that like a hundred, it literally a hundred years ago, we discovered there were galaxies besides the Milky Way. Right. And I mean, that's right. just like only a hundred years ago. When you think about the guy who discovered the T-Rex was consulting on the 64 World's Fair. Yeah. That's pretty right? nuts. Yeah. Pretty wild. And these, yeah, these models, there's a model of a triceratops. It was used at the fair. It appeared in the TV movie, The Enormous Egg in 1968, which I'd really, <laughs> it's on my watch list now. It was named Uncle Beasley from his role in that <laughs> movie. He lived on the National Mall for years, so I'm assuming we saw him there. He is now at the DC Zoo, which I have definitely oh, seen him there. Oh, okay. So, Uncle Beasley. Uncle Beasley from The Enormous Egg. I'm very curious about The Enormous Egg. Uh, yeah, the stuff I've seen makes me just, it's a necessity now for me. Well, after the success of Dinorama at the fair, it's no surprise that Disney would be looking for some dinosaurs to be involved in their presentation at Epcot. But would visitors also clamor to see the world beneath them? It was all in the hands of designers at WED.
Listen and you'll hear the heartbeat of a universe teeming with force. See all the forms and the faces of nature taking its course. And feel all the wonderful motion flowing through things far and near. Nature will share her secrets when we are ready to hear energy. These are a few of your faces glowing in timeless places, bringing our lives new graces. Energy, there is no living without you. We must keep learning about you. Now is the time to find how to Energy You are profound You make the world go round and round You make the world go round You make the world go round You make the world go round We've spent several episodes now talking about the creation of the various future world pavilions, and by now it should be clear that some pavilions' developments are better documented than others. If you listen to our episode about the land, for instance, you'll see that quite a bit of information has emerged over the years about how that pavilion's concept developed. Other pavilions, like World of Motion, got an outsized amount of media coverage at the time due to the creative talent involved or the particular quirks of that show's presentation. But other attractions, like this month's subject, Universe of Energy, have far more mysterious origins. We don't really know that much about how Universe of Energy's unique presentation developed. Some of this is because key early creative personnel like Claude Coates are no longer with us. Another reason is that, much like World of Motion, the Energy Pavilion signed on its corporate sponsor so early that there wasn't a need to develop a variety of disparate concepts in the search for an operating participant. This is in contrast to pavilions like The Land, where we saw widely elaborate concepts developed for the attraction bandied about in public because Disney was searching for a sponsor. The case of Energy, Exxon was locked down so early that Disney didn't really need to do a big PR push for the pavilion. They could just get to work behind closed doors. Uh, Jeff, you know, with The Land, you had Tony Baxter's big version. You had all these other versions. Energy, it seems like they just got down to business. It's interesting and I don't know. I mean, there's just, uh, this one goes way back. Right. I mean, it's like, I'm sure yeah. you're going to talk about it, but like, uh, but it just kind of lived in mystery the whole time. You usually, you would think there'd be more, more to know, but I mean, I'm sure there is more to know, but we yeah. don't know. It. But I mean, even in some of the earliest like promotional stuff for Epcot, you'd see dinosaur renderings and it looks pretty right. much like what we got. And, uh, so yeah, this, this one, was on track early on. And especially architecturally, it was like one of the first that got kind of set up yeah, uh, with its architecture and just kind of stayed there forever. Absolutely. So what do we know? Well, of course, we have to start off again in 1975 with the Future World Theme Center. At the time, the energy attraction was intended to be part of the larger science and technology area of the theme center. Concept art from the time shows exhibits with enormous lasers and other impressive technology. Yes. 
never really says what's going on, but it looks really impressive. There's anyway. a lot of that in those early renderings. Of like, yeah. What is this going to be? Yeah, exactly. Just sort of like Omnimovers zipping around and giant things happening. So who knows what they had in mind. This was an era when energy was a very hot topic around the world, and Disney themselves had outsized ambitions for incorporating new energy technology into Walt Disney World. Said Disney at the time, quote, It is planned that a new office building of the Reedy Creek Utility District will be heated and air-conditioned with a prototype solar energy collector system. We are also considering the prototype installation of a total energy solar system to provide power for 25 new homes in the community of Lake Buena Vista. Eventually, our engineers hope to heat and air condition the World Showcase Complex through solar energy, and ultimately, to achieve the goal of energy self-sufficiency at Walt Disney World. So these were big plans. Yeah, yeah. And I think, so, you know, we talked about with World of Motion, uh, when we talked about that, it's Disney's futurism when he was alive. Waltz was really transportation based. Well, moving into the seventies, you also developed this real energy component. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I'm sure we'll get into it more, but I just think it's so sad that, you know, you had general motors and Exxon sign on to be the sponsors of these pavilions. What could they have been? And I love world of motion. I mean, obviously, and I love this ride too, but as far as the messaging, and the future casting having different sponsors that didn't represent those interests might have been yeah more compelling well yeah it's just a shame that like the solar industry at that point was just very very new like very new. Right. and of course nobody in the solar realm had deep pockets as exxon did right of and this is like a vote for the future theme center one of the reasons why i think i would have preferred it in the end is that it would have been reliant more on the academy as well as industry and yeah you know less the need for one sponsor to take it on uh, so you could have maybe gotten through to some more innovative stuff really yeah absolutely and they did on property get to do some some solar energy stuff they did some alternate fuel stuff they they had enough things that we'll talk about in the future in future episodes that was uh, very forward looking but uh, thankfully, you know, they, they kind of got off of that for a while when Eisner came in, they weren't quite doing that kind of stuff as much, but, uh, now, you know, they've got solar farms and everything. So it's kind of yeah. come back around. Yeah. It's prudent. Yeah, absolutely. Especially down here. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of sunshine. So, you know, it was a time when in the seventies, solar energy was really experimental. As I said, on the cutting edge, which makes Disney's ambitions even more impressive, these prototype installations would have tied into the Epcot plans as well as they would have acted as satellite demonstration sites, which Walt Disney World guests could possibly visit and about which they could learn in the future World Theme Center. I wish. Yeah. Given the importance of energy issues on the world stage at the time, it's unsurprising that an energy pavilion was a consistent element of the future world lineup from 1975 onward. In 1976, it was said that an energy show was expected to be one of the first elements of the theme center to be built. This was really forward of mind for them. And given their like panic at the gas crisis and how much that affected Walt Disney World in general, it's no surprise that they were tuned into this. 
Well, that and the fact that you think they're kind of, I mean, they're essentially running a city down there already. Uh, and they're in charge of their, <laughs> they're in charge of their own utilities. Yeah. Timely. Uh, so, you know, again, it's like not only, uh, being futuristic, but it's serving your own self-interest, I, I think. And I don't, yeah, it's one of the reasons why I don't understand why sustainable stuff didn't take off more at this time when it was like starting to take off, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, well, this is how the uh, Disney described the energy pavilion in 1977 quote housed in a single facility. The energy pavilion will be identified by its sloped parabolic roof covered with solar reflector plates, indicating that this facility is, in fact, a working solar energy converter. The show inside will be a four-act revolving theater relating various present and future aspects of energy production and its uses. Uh, Jeff, again, another rotating theater. That's right. And we're already getting kind of, you know, locked into kind of what it's going to be as far as the exterior. You know, it's yeah. not, not there yet, but... It, a lot closer than some others were. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was noted at the time that work on the show had not progressed sufficiently at the at that time to allow a more detailed explanation of the show concept beyond that brief summary that I just gave. So it seems that they didn't really know what they had planned beyond the idea of a rotating theater show and a solar installation on the roof. And a lot of pavilion artwork was released during this time showcasing the rooftop solar array. So they had that locked down. In some, the pavilion has a shape similar to the final design, just with a lot of other solar exhibits dotting the landscape around it, which was pretty interesting. Other artwork shows a more parabolic-shaped building with a rooftop array of mirrors focusing the sun's light on a single collector tower. Now, this setup was similar to larger-scale installations of the era, uh, one of which would be highlighted in the final Pavilions Theater 2 film. So this is the one where yes. you'd have like a big tower in the middle of a bunch of reflectors. That, and in science textbooks of our youth, those, these yeah. were prominently featured out in the desert. But yeah, I mean, thank goodness they came up with this idea they were so obsessed with because it, you know, despite the sponsor, it ended up having a solar array. So Yeah, absolutely. By November of 1977, the Energy Pavilion was described as a half-hour revolving theater show, which is about where the final attraction clocked in time-wise. It would seat 500 people per theater and would feature a pre-show exhibit featuring a walk-through area, which would pass into a prehistoric scene. So here we get our first hint of dinosaurs. Uh, it was said that audio-animatronic figures would provide an introduction to the fossil fuel story, and a post-show exhibit area would include a surrounding energy storm, whatever that means. Yeah, uh, it sounds exciting. Maybe it's that thing that, you know, they had the lightning, like the big lightning thing that they would show in all the imaginary things. <laughs> yeah, the, the one for uh, Norway that they never yeah, used. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. But the energy storm pops up a lot in descriptions from this era. So they were really into that idea, whatever they had in, in mind. Another interesting tidbit is at this point in 1977, the pavilion was to include an adjoining fast food facility, which sounds interesting. And given that this was the 70s, I envisioned lots of dudes drinking raw eggs for energy. Like right. The, the, right. Energy, the energy cafe with, you know, sprouts and raw eggs or whatever. 
So we can see even at this early date, the threads are starting to come together. A rotating theater show would evolve into the eventual pavilion's moving theater cars, and the dinosaur pre-show would become part of the attraction. I've always wanted to know who suggested they incorporate the old primeval world diorama into the energy show. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I don't know. I, and why is it, uh, why is it such a given? Uh, I, this is something I thought odd about the, uh, the stuff that I was talking about. It's like, I, I get it, but it also, yeah, <laughs> I, I don't get it. <laughs> it's like, right. There have but to be dinosaurs. It's just like it lives in their mind. Well, because it's Fantasia lifted from Fantasia for Ford Magic Skyway. Right. Lifted from Ford Magic Skyway for this. Uh, we have first for Disneyland, now for this. And it's, you know, pretty identical all the way along. And they just must have really loved it. Been like, oh, we got this in our pocket. We can use that. I will say, shockingly, yeah, the, uh, you know, the Tyrannosaurus and Stegosaurus being contemporaries is not accurate. Right. The so surprise they kept with that. The Sinclair incidentally had the, the Triceratops fighting the, the Tyrannosaurus. So, oh, you know. Sinclair. Sinclair. You, uh, yeah. And I'm, I'm sure Sinclair was also on the mind of these guys as they were putting this together. Have as, to be, right? Yeah. As we've seen other pavilions like Futurama and things like that sort of living in their mind space, This the Sinclair had to be. This is how Disney described the pavilion in the 1977 corporate annual report. Quote, even from the outside, the energy pavilion will be a strong visual statement as it generates power via its own solar energy systems. Here, the formation of fossil fuel energy will be portrayed, climaxed by a sudden energy storm of wind, lightning, rain, fire, and volcanic eruptions demonstrating the almost endless potential of raw energy available for man. Then visitors will see man overcoming the major crises of the past and finally the choices he must consider today, racing against the clock in a search for new energy and finally harnessing tomorrow's vast new sources for the future world of energy. Wow. Yeah, it's very, like man as god it would pair well yeah. with the the sea early seas pavilion yes uh, concepts yeah and it's uh, very similar to those exhibits you were talking about it's like found wealth you know the endless potential of raw energy you know yes this, we we will harness it and the create, dominion yeah yeah create wealth from it Early art direction for this pavilion came from the ever-present Claude Coates, who touched pretty much everything in the park in its early phases, as well as a legendary longtime Hollywood production designer named Jack Martin Smith. Now, Smith was one of the many illustrious art directors Wed gathered from storied Hollywood careers to work on Epcot. He had worked first at MGM, where he did production design for The Wizard of Oz, Wow. And later moved to Fox, where he did Cleopatra and Hello, Dolly, amongst many others. Any of these would have made for a legendary career, but it's wild to think of one person doing it all and then coming to work on Epcot. Yeah. Man, it's just like some of the most legendary productions of all time. Yeah, he was there with John DeCure bankrupting Fox, I guess, on Cleopatra <laughs> and Hello, right. Dolly. Of course, Randy Bright would also be heavily involved in the pavilion's development, as it would feature a number of large format films, and he served as a sort of executive producer for all of the park's film presentations. 
In January of 1978, Exxon became the second American corporation to announce participation in Epcot, just after General Motors. They signed a letter of intent to sponsor an energy pavilion, which would dramatize the historical development of all forms of energy and various energy supply choices for the future. Jack Lindquist, who was Disney's vice president of marketing, said at the time that talks with Exxon had reached a serious level nine months prior. So that means like early spring, a sort of spring 77, which was really early for Epcot Mm -hmm. compared to other sponsors. Production continued over the following years. By the end of 1978, the Energy Pavilion was expected to include a 36-minute show cycle and a post-show walkthrough exhibit. By July of 1980, Exxon had signed off on the pavilion's name, Universe of Energy. We get no wacky alternates. We, I, I, I don't have a list of wacky alternates for this one. They just got down to business. Yeah, but it's a good, a good solid name. Yeah, yes, it is. As with the other Future World shows, Energy had its own panel of consultants and advisors from various technological and historical institutions. Energy's lineup included Joseph Gavin, president of the Grumman Corporation, who had worked on the team that helped save Apollo 13. Oh, wow. So these are no chumps. Uh, Much like World of Motion, its fellow early Epcot signee, Universe of Energy was to be housed in a simply-shaped building whose form and function were determined much earlier than other pavilions. About the pavilion show building itself, architect George Rester said, quote, The exterior of the building is as much a part of the show as the interior. We have tried to come up with a unique architecture. It's a challenge to make visitors' experiences inspiring, to make a strong impression in a very brief time. The final show building was kind of a faceted, six-sided polygon. Its longer faces were more than 300 feet long, and its roof rose from 20 feet at the entrance to 60 feet at the apex. On its roof were more than 80,000 photovoltaic cells, the world's largest privately funded solar power installation at the time. The cells were fabricated by Solar Power Corporation, an affiliate of Exxon Enterprises, the Exxon division responsible for new business development. So Exxon was trying to get their beak wet in the solar field even then. Good for them. Yeah. These cells provided the pavilion with 70,000 watts of energy, enough to power 15 average homes. Because of these, the building was constructed to be oriented due south. Said Mike McCullough, a WED structural engineer, this was developed through an analysis of the position of the sun throughout the course of the year. We came up with what we consider an optimum tilt angle for our conditions. So, I, I, you know, analyzing the position of the sun throughout the course of the year, uh, it's like, you know, Stonehenge had that figured out. So, don't pat yourself on the back too much, (laughs) you know. That's, That's been known for a while, but good job anyway. The solar cells were accompanied by a rooftop system which monitored and recorded the performance and condition of the installation, as well as weather conditions. So, I had a little weather station up there. Down the sides of the pavilion were bands of warm colors, symbolizing radiating heat. Separate structures stood in front of the main building with a mirrored surface that reflected rippling water in a pool below. This was meant to suggest energy in motion. These mirrored surfaces, uh, a little infamous for baking audiences in the unsheltered heat of Florida. Yeah, it's like one of those solar arrays you were talking about. I wonder if this mirrored thing is a kind of descendant from that old rendering of the energy pavilion had that big 
sun looking thing in the middle of it. It looked kind of like yes. a fountain. Yeah, a big sort of sculptural thing. That was cool. Of some sort. That was really yeah. cool. Yeah, I'd love to know what the thinking was behind that. Uh, Disney intended the Pavilion Show to take a serious look at all the faces of energy and stress the realities and responsibilities we face concerning this vital resource and optimistically present our energy options for the future. Said Disney, quote, We don't want to sugarcoat or whitewash the issues, but examine the numerous factors that compose the world's energy picture and also explore viable energy systems for today and tomorrow. The challenge was to design a show that would encompass the facts of the energy story and convey the information in a dynamic, enlightening way that is once sophisticated enough to entertain an adult and exciting enough for a young person. Hmm. So it's like uh, the uh, frosted uh, mini weights. It's for an an adult, but exciting enough for a young person. So they took a hard industrial energy story and sandwiched it between an animation experience, a ride-through experience, and exciting computer graphic-heavy finale. Since four of the five show experiences used some sort of film, Disney felt it important that each be uniquely different from the others in their creative approach and means of expression. The final show was the result of over 40 script revisions And each version was subject to review by both Exxon and the Independent Board of Energy Advisors, the Epcot Center Energy Advisory Committee. So let's take a look at what this show would have been like if we turned back the time. Uh, Upon entering the pavilion, you'd first witness this amazing tile mural featuring a countdown clock to the next show. Jeff, this mural was next level. Yeah, Yeah, it's really cool. It was like the sun... And they had like a little dot for the earth, right? Is that yeah. How, yeah. 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 The sun and, uh, you know, this radiating heat. And then had the countdown clock as part of the mural. Like uh, that trans- was, yeah, I was going to yeah. say that just took my attention from it every time. Cause that yeah. was so cool. The transparent tiles making a sort of digital, digital clock. Super cool. Uh, after stopping to marvel at the mural, you'd wait for the countdown clock to tick away the seconds until the next pre-show began. Hopefully you'd grab one of the few benches at the rear of the theater, since back in the day you weren't supposed to sit on the carpet and you'd get yelled at. Yeah, no sitting on that carpet. No, you don't want some jabroni walking into you and tripping over you. Exactly. It's a lawsuit waiting to happen. The six-minute pre-show was entitled Energy You Make the World Go Round. And man, this was a memorable one. Film presentation was a primer on different forms of energy and their importance in our lives. Touched on mechanical, chemical, and electrical energy, among other forms. And showed some of the techniques we have learned in order to control energy and the advances of civilization caused by this knowledge. But this just wasn't any pre-show film. This was a real work of art. It was put together by Emil Radok, an accomplished Czechoslovakian filmmaker and artist who helped create the Lanterna Magica, which is considered the world's first multimedia theater. The Lanterna Magica made its debut as a cultural program at the 1958 Brussels Expo, and it really made a splash at Expo 67 in Montreal. Radok defected to Canada in 1968 and lived there the rest of his life, the Laterna Magica is still an ongoing concern in Prague. I encourage you to look it up because it is pretty wild. I mean, 
this concept for a show is so ambitious considering what it is. It's like what it's like something you would see in an artist rendering that actually came to life. Yes. Is one of I mean, is it weird to say it's one of the more ambitious things they did? Yeah, well when you consider the show control technology of the time and then pulling this off, combining film and you know, we're gonna talk about what it was, but yeah, super ambitious. Yeah. So cool. Yeah, very cool. Uh, for the show, Red Eye used five synchronized 35 millimeter projectors. I mean, consider just the fact of syncing five projectors perfectly, which cast images on a 100 foot wide screen made of 100 individual three sided segments. It's basically like if you projected a movie on the old game board of Wheel of Fortune, you know, just these segments that could rotate around. Each individual screen segment was computer-controlled and rotated in sync with the projected images, exposing either a black side, a projection surface, or a combination of the two. The result was a three-dimensional moving mosaic. It was really impressive. I'm amused that in any description of the show from the time, there is a very heavy emphasis on the fact that the screen was controlled by microprocessors. Right? Yeah, said Disney. This was, quote, the first time a computer has been used to control the movements of elements within a motion picture presentation. They were so proud. Well, I mean, this is what I'm saying though. It's like so many, it's like something you see often now where there's like all these elements working from computer control, but this is like really upfront. And and if it goes wrong, you know, it goes wrong and it's impressive. They did it so right. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, yeah, just the the programming and then the staging of it and then have it play, you know, all day, every day is still really impressive for me. And and like you said, this has become like a, you know, all sorts of places have multimedia interest to things now as, uh, you know, you visit a national park, probably has something, mm-hmm. you know, like this, a very imposing multimedia presentation. But this was kind of the real groundbreaking well, I think what's cool is that, you know, it's done by an artist, so it it does have a real artistic sensibility to it as well. So, like, if you went and watched it today, you know, the narration might sound a little out of date, but the whole presentation would still seem really cool because of the artistic direction, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it was not your typical sort of corporate product. It was a work of art by a, a person. So, yeah, it made a right. difference. Of course, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention the Capper theme song for the pre-show, Energy, You Make the World Go Round by Bob Moline, which, man, that is top-shelf stuff. Yeah, so heartfelt, you know, energy. It's <laughs> true. Where would, we be? Where would we be without you? You make the world go round and round. Uh, we talked a little about Bob Moline back on our episode about the land, so if you missed that, check it out. But this might be some of his finest work, because it's one thing to – successfully basically write a love song to energy uh but another thing entirely to make it just a total banger of a tune it's so good this is like uh maybe this goes in my theory with the gillette theme song i have a theory the gillette theme song was a uh a cast off by bruce springsteen and it was a song <laughs> like called Jeanette. you know <laughs> So maybe there's like an energy that was like, you know, a, a lady's name that he just repurposed it to be. 
It does okay. sound so so much like a love song. It's really funny. Angeline, you make the world go round. Yeah, maybe that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah, very good. Once that pre-show was over, we'd proceed into theater one of the attraction for the first part of the show, the energy creation story. This was the first act of an epic 24-minute show, and it all started off in this enormous triangular theater. Two sides of the room were covered by curtains in a fabric that I always thought very reminiscent of the original Star Trek series. It was very sparkly. Very, very yeah. true. Yeah. Third side of the room, which was actually behind you as you entered, was a massive projection surface. So here you would board enormous traveling theater cars. Each one measured 18 by 29 feet and seated 97 people, weighed six and a half tons, and there were six of these packed in there together. It was pretty wild. Uh, lately, I've seen several people talking about how they didn't even realize this was a ride. They just thought they were sitting in a big theater and were shocked when the things started to move. Which yeah, it's like a real, uh, you know, reveal, right? Yeah, because they're so big, you don't expect them to move. It uh, is odd how they're kind of sitting, you know, in the middle of this even larger room because they have to go through. Yeah, right. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, if you're not paying attention, uh, and you know, where else have you been where the theater moves? Why would you think it moved? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You'd be like, this is kind of a strange staging, but I get it. Uh, but yeah, it would be a surprise. Uh, the first thing to happen once the lights went down was the entire theater of six vehicles began to rotate to face the projection surface that I mentioned earlier. They were rotated by computer-controlled turntables, which moved on a cushion of air, basically giant airbags which inflated, allowing the turntable to move. The turntable floors supported maximum loads of 170,000 pounds, but the lift for the rotation was achieved with only 40 PSI of air pressure. The key is volume, said Dave Harbaugh, a WED engineer. Inner tubes beneath the turntables were supplied with 459 cubic feet of air per minute. They shifted less than an inch, which allowed the turntables to be rotated by two friction wheel drive units that pressed on the side of the turntable. There was nothing you could fall back on and say, this works. Everything was from scratch, said Harbaugh. And boy, did they have problems. You might remember we've talked in the past with some folks who had to make sure the concrete bed for this apparatus was poured properly so that it wouldn't get ground to dust by the turntable's massive payload. Yeah, it was quite a mechanism. It's just really crazy. Yeah, this whole pavilion's kind of like an artist rendering come to life with <laughs> that pre-show and, you know, the, the concept of this and how... It's like with Epcot, all these ride systems had to be a little different, and they just all were reaching for something so ambitious. I mean, mm -hmm. this one is really crazy. Well, it's kind of one of the benefits of having the sponsorship system, because every sponsor wanted something unique. They didn't want to have something that someone else had. So it was like every every movie had to be a different format. Every ride had to be a different style of ride. And uh, I think we benefited from it. Absolutely. So once the vehicles had rotated, the show began. And this first part of the energy story was told via animation. In fact, it was the largest piece of film animation ever created to that point. Veteran Disney animator Jack Boyd worked with a staff of 50 young artists on this piece. Boyd was an effects animator who worked at the studio from 1940 until 1983. 
and his work includes most of the big-name animated features from that period. He was in it all the way up until Black Cauldron. And, uh, yeah, a very impressive resume. And, like I said, this was a big film. It used three 70-millimeter projectors to cover a screen 155 feet wide. It was a challenge to enlarge animation to that scale to ensure an adequate level of detail and motion throughout the frame, but still not have it be totally frenetic and like a sensory overload. The good old multiplane camera was even brought out of mothballs to photograph it and was projected at 30 frames per second to eliminate projection flutter. This was common practice for Epcot films. Huh? That's crazy. Yeah. A a different, a different frame rate, which uh, yeah. Yeah. To make it, which I guess is why they all look so good. You didn't get Mm -hmm. that flicker. That's amazing. Yeah. This film is full of surprises, Boyd said. There's rain, lightning, and volcanoes, huge beasts, little bugs, and plant life. People will come back just to see what they've missed, and that's our greatest compliment. The film showed the story of the creation of fossil fuels from the formation of the Earth itself to the development of microscopic plants, which became a silent snowfall of organic matter, which accumulated became compressed into shale, and eventually transformed into oil and gas. The film then showed higher plant and animal life evolving until the primeval forest and its inhabitants died and decayed into peat, which eventually turned into coal. Uh, Jeff, my unease in this pavilion began with the enormous swooping animated pterodactyl. That's quite a, quite a shock. Yeah. Man, what a cool the mood this sets. Very... The music, the music yes. of it is very cool. It's very uh, um, uh, inner space. Yeah, well, of. they they needle drop music from Adventures Through Inner Space, Aha, so it is it go. is the same uh, same mysterious dark vibe. It's very mm-hmm. cool. Yeah. So after we've seen how fossil fuels formed, it was time to head off and experience a few moments from the dark and mysterious past when much of the Earth's supply of fossil fuels were deposited. This was a really amazing moment when the Theater of Six ride vehicles rotated, split apart, vehicles headed off into the primeval diorama. Each traveling theater car was driven by a single six-horsepower electric motor powered by eight 12-volt lead-acid batteries, which were automatically recharged via electric induction when the vehicles were stationary. So it's like putting uh, putting your cell phone on the little wireless charger, but just, you know. 40 years ago. Right. This made them not only the largest Disney ride vehicles ever, but the largest road type electric vehicles ever built at the time, according to Disney. What does that mean? I don't know what that means. (laughs) They were, they were, they were quite proud, but I don't know. Yeah. Road type. Famously, the vehicles were automatically guided by a wire, only one eighth inch in diameter, which was embedded in the concrete floor. This guidance system was designed by GM and allowed the vehicle to remain in constant communication with the wayside computer and receive its commands via the guide wire, which is still amazing to me that yeah. this was a thing. These vehicles were large, as we've said, so to exit and re-enter the theaters, they required huge doorways. The largest of these doors was 92 feet by 12 feet high and required an extensive hydraulic system to lower the doors beneath the floor level so that vehicles could pass. So cool. Yeah. 
And at this point, guests would enter the real heart of the pavilion show, a.k.a. the part with the dinosaurs. Said Disney, this was the largest and most authentically detailed primeval diorama ever built. It featured 36 lifelike dinosaurs and around 250 prehistoric trees. The scenic backdrop surrounding the forest was the largest they'd ever created, reaching 32 feet high and 515 feet across. It took three artists almost 6,000 hours to paint. The mural was so big that Disney didn't have any facility large enough to hold it for painting and had to rent out soundstage space at 20th Century Fox. Ah. Yeah. Jeff, this is part of why I started hyperventilate when they got rid of this attraction, just to think of the scale of that painting and having it disappear in a poof. It gets to me. This painting uh, featured in We're Getting Ready. Yeah. And all media at the time. Absolutely. Show the, the Tyrannosaurus coming in to maybe Tahunga. I don't know where it was. Or Mapo, uh-huh. And then that the painting of that. Absolutely. Yeah, they always show that. That's true. They love that. Yeah. Maybe Bob Garner got that film. Who knows? Could be. Could be. be. The diorama took guests back 275 million years to the Mesozoic era. Imagineers consulted paleontologists and paleobotanists to learn as much as they could about the plants and animals of the time and claimed that they even researched what the animals might have sounded like which I assume was Jimmy McDonald growling in an old soup can. (laughs) Said Disney, certain things were exaggerated, recreated bigger than they probably were to dress it up for the show experience. I like that they actually admitted to this because there were definitely some shenanigans. I actually talked about this at the Epcot 35th D23 event, where we had some old memos recounting a discussion about giant snails in the diorama. Apparently, the Imagineers had been informed that giant snails just weren't a thing. They just weren't ever a thing. That just didn't happen. And eventually, it was decided to leave them out. But at some point, that must have changed because the giant snails definitely made their way in to the diorama. Oh, they're there. Yeah. So for all their self-proclaimed attention to detail, there were definitely some liberties taken. Reggie the snail. The scenes of the diorama were familiar to anyone who had been on 1964's Ford Magic Skyway or seen Disneyland's Primeval World Diorama. We had our peaceful family of brontosauruses, a stegosaurus fighting an allosaurus. It wasn't a T-Rex, it was an allosaurus, apparently. And three ornithomimuses struggling to escape from mud pits as the Earth's crust began turning to desert towards the end of the dinosaur era. Earthquakes and volcanoes rocked the earth as an elasmosaurus thrashed around in the tidal pool. Now, for me, this was the scariest part of the ride. I hated that guy. Yeah, for sure. I would Uh, intentionally scheme to sit on the opposite side of the ride vehicle (laughs) from where I knew that was coming. It's funny because that seems so uh, intense. And then they would go on to build stuff much more intense. And... uh, yeah, it's just the evolution, but that, but that felt pretty intense at the time. That's kind of a horrifying thing. Yeah, especially yeah. when all the effects were working and you'd have all the splashing water and everything. Right, right. And, uh, man, the it's it's yeah, a lot of effects works going on. Going to talk about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, for instance, we got molten lava spewing from erupting volcanoes, 
shooting nearly 20 feet overhead, which is pretty impressive. The lava flowed down the rocks around us as smoke hissed from burning trees. Ride vehicles then escaped into a dense, cool fog, passing through layers of the Earth's strata. This was meant to symbolize moving back through time to the 20th century. It was a real special effects tour de force. Yeah, so many cool special effects, and the transitions are incredible. Like, when they do the reveal of the the door opening and the kind of sunrise going yes. is one of the best moments at Epcot, I feel like. Yeah, because it's it's dark. It's like nighttime, and, this, and then the sun rises. And, and it just feels like it feels like film, Like and then you go into it, which is really yeah, cool. Yeah, absolutely. And then the exit is just so, you know, it's like so much stuff going on, and you go through it, and, you, and it's completely dark. So it's another kind of mysterious transition. So pretty cool. Uh, yeah, very much. Yeah. Uh, Bill Novi, who was the head of special effects at WED, said, we want to reach people, to touch them, to involve all their senses. And boy, did they. From the start, when the brontosauruses loomed in their swamp, you could smell damp earth, the so-called eau de swamp, which was blown into riders' paths by the good old WED smellitzer. The smellitzer used scents from suppliers from around the world, and WED even installed special filtration systems which were used to absorb the smell of their odor so they wouldn't linger, which I thought was Hey, that's brilliant. Yeah. As riders entered the diorama, as we said, a storm rumbles in, the sky darkens, lightning flashes. Uh, this lightning was the result of a burst animation projector, which was invented to produce animated lightning without the use of running film. So it was kind of like, you know, strobe, as if you set up the different cells of the animation in a line and then had a strobe move behind them, you know, it would create mm -hmm. the illusion of animation, the illusion of life, so to speak. Other innovations in hardware and chemical substances were required for WED to create a seemingly natural outdoor environment inside the building. These included a solid-state fog box that produced fog without dry ice or chemicals, and a custom-designed illuminators to send light through fiber-optic cables to shine as stars or fly as sparks from a volcano. The illusioneers needed to create fire effects, wind effects, bloopers in the mud pit, steam, rain, and the sunrise itself. As the dank perfume, quote-unquote, of the swamp was overcome by the smell of fire and brimstone, guests countered an array of effects at the volcanic finale. Dubbed Mount St. Martin after lighting in a special effects manager, Bud Martin, the volcano stood three stories high. The effect was so complicated that it took seven attempts to realize the effect. The lava flow was the most complex special effect WED ever developed, and it took them deeper into the field of chemical development than ever before. They needed to develop a suitable lava, but also had to build what they called the largest lava refinery east of the Continental Divide. Hmm. A massive support system was created behind the scenes for the effect, with mixing vats, storage vats, pump stations, and distribution manifolds. One of the primary ingredients of the lava was a commercial food thickener used in everything from toothpaste to commercial bulk laxatives. To this was added blacklight pigments and other ingredients, but according to Disney, the lava was edible. 
the whole lava thing was a big selling point at the time. It, it gets mentioned a lot. Oh yeah. And photographed in a way, you know, in that beard book that where it like doesn't even translate to like what's happening. It's always the lava lava. <laughs> it's it's, we went to a lot of, a lot of links to make this lava and we're going to talk mm-hmm. about it. Well, it was also difficult to find a way to adequately pump the lava while keeping it at the desired consistency. They even tried a machine that had been used to fill Dodger dogs, but wound up using Ew. a machine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really. Ew. Wound up using a machine used to pump dog food instead, and it worked. All these effects were ac- when these effects were actually working. This scene was incredible. I just wish I could remember it better from when it was at full power. Yeah, I uh, I think that's the deal. I was like what. What I remember is the one spritzing at the top that was lit up, but yeah, I don't really remember the one flowing down other than the kind of static version. Right. I think a lot of this stuff got turned off for the Ellen version. And yeah, so it kind of has faded into memory, but it was super dynamic when it started. I mean, the there it rained on the brontosauruses when the storm at the start. And I mean, just imagine the upkeep and maintenance of keeping all this stuff going just having all this like water inside is a challenge i'm sure keep it from being just totally musty of course there were other challenges uh disney had made large fabricated animals before they had never made prehistoric trees however the trees in disneyland's primeval diorama were actually real trees with plastic leaves attached which i didn't realize what yeah just staple them on, I guess. Staple them on, boys. For the universe of energy, Wed had to invent whole new ways of constructing trees with new lightweight plastic fabrication technology and formed an entire group just to make trees. Disney at the time pointed out the irony that the foam plastic trees were made from the same fossil fuels created by the real trees of prehistory. So isn't that fun? Hmm. As riders escaped beneath the volcano and returned to the 20th century, they'd find themselves in the Epcot Energy Information Center. Uh, A live cast member would welcome us to the EEIC, which was meant to look like a sort of mission control for all things energy-related. Scenes were displayed on seven video monitors, each highlighting a then-current or emerging energy source from around the world. Uh, I barely remember this aspect of the show. I went back and looked at Martin's video to like refresh my memory. And uh, originally they said they were going to have a live host or hostess like uh, greet you, which I would imagine was an easy thing for ops to cut along the way, because at least by the time of Martin's videos, it was a pre-recorded message. And it may have been that way the whole time actually, but at least, at least by that point it had been replaced with a, a pre-recorded voice saying, you know, on these monitors, you will see energy from around the world. It was pretty much a throwaway moment in the show, but the general idea of the Epcot Energy Information Center feels really old school future world theme center to me. Absolutely. Yeah. Definite tie to that. And and they kept that giant console forever where yeah. the person would stand and there would be people there, but just not. I always wondered if they were just like cast members, like monitoring the ride and they dressed it up to look like they were doing energy things. But yeah, you're right. They were there for a long, long time, just kind of sitting there. But 
I just figured they were just keeping an eye on the security camera or whatever, you know? I don't know. We'll have to find some old Universe of Energy cast members and ask them, I guess. The Theater 2 film, which guests then viewed, was directed by Norman Gerard and Jerry Sims and was meant to depict the many challenges we were facing with increasing energy demands and to highlight then-current technologies which were helping us to meet those needs. As with most Epcot films, it was massive, using a giant curved 210-foot-wide screen. For this film, Disney filmmakers developed a technique for photographing a 218-degree field of view with almost no distortion. Ah, no distortion. The system used three synchronized 70-millimeter cameras on a special mount, with their lenses looking into three precisely angled mirrors to produce an almost seamless image. For a film that would run around 12 minutes, members of the Disney crew say they brought back enough footage to make a film the length of Gone with the Wind. <laughs> okay. Which got repeated in, like, I saw a couple of press stories where they repeated that fact. So they were quite pleased with that. I want to know what happened to that footage. I want to see all that. A crew of seven lugged the 550-pound camera rig around the world taking viewers to the Alaskan frontier, the stormy North Sea, and even over Niagara Falls. While filming in the North Sea, the camera actually kept icing up, had to be taken indoors and thawed out between shots to continue filming. The message of the film was that no one energy type would meet our requirements, that we needed many forms of power to ensure a proper energy diet. It also emphasized that we must conserve present-day fuels as well, and it ended by talking about how the universe of energy was an example of the day's leading technology as the guests had been riding on sunshine the whole time. Thanks what? to the solar cells on the roof. Twist ending. Mm -hmm. Moving once more, the vehicles returned to Theater One, where the funky curtains had withdrawn to reveal mirrored walls. The giant cars turned to face the apex of the triangular room, this time facing away from the enormous projection screen. A giant transparent scrim sat in front of the vehicles. Now, this was the show's finale called Universe of Energy, and this was far out. The song Universe of Energy by Al Kasha and Joel Hirshhorn played while computer animated figures in glowing laser like colors swirled around us. Mirrored walls in the huge scrim combined with front and rear projections by one 35 millimeter and three 70 millimeter projectors brought the illusion of being surrounded by images. This brief musical finale was about the rewards of energy, how it affects our mobility, communications, agriculture, construction, health, medicine, education, and recreation. Uh, and again, this pavilion was two for two on amazing theme songs. Yeah. I mean, this one though is in a class of its own. I mean, Wow. What a, what a song this is probably, you know, I don't know. I don't know how you could say best, but this is one of the best for sure. It always this gets song. me when I pull them up to listen to them that I'm always bummed that they're so short just due to their necessity mm -hmm. of being in the show. It's like, I want more. I need more of this amazing song. This duo was something else. We'll have to go into them more at a later time, but had a lot of songwriting under their belt by this time, so they knew what they were doing. Bob Moline was the young Turk, so they, they each brought something different. Yeah, absolutely. But I'm curious. I mean, uh, 
was this stuff computer animated? I don't understand how stuff like this worked. Is it like, I don't know. I, it, I don't understand. It's so weird to me. This it stuff. was. Yeah. It the, the 90 second finale used, it was then cutting edge computer graphics. Uh, filmmaker David Moore, who worked in CGI at the time, did this and it was i had always assumed it was just hand-drawn animation yeah weird just done in a different this style was the style of the time i mean it would appear but yeah i never knew it's such a unique it's like a like a they would have intro to sporting events at the time you yes this kind of stuff too this kind of look also kind of like um i'm trying to place it like some sort of like public service announcement like remember that um what what, are, what am i thinking of like uh, like commercials on tv that are sponsored that aren't uh like a corporate sponsor but are psa like a psa yeah gosh yeah. My yes yes like a, the one about um science from a to z yes astrology biology chemistry right. zoology that's what this reminds me of um that that style of animation from the era but yeah this is computer disney said this Science is our and technology. technology it's, it's fun, fun you'll, you'll see, see. yeah again uh it's probably like 35 years ago and stuck in my brain uh, that's a good jingle <laughs> you know the jingle yeah. works yeah yeah disney said this is our first use of computer assisted graphics and the vibrance of their laser like colors is breathtaking so, yeah, I'd love to know more. Sadly, David Moore is no longer with us, but uh, I would love to know more about the process here because you can imagine the equipment that they were working with was not <laughs> super advanced for that time, but probably pretty rudimentary at this era. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyway, the, finally the curtains would close on the mirrored walls. Guests would exit. Uh, in later years, they would exit by pictures of tigers, right? Those those tigers destined for our tanks. There was even some sort of Exxon sponsored "Save the Tiger" kind of thing that they had yeah, information yeah. about at some point. And at one point, the post show—I mean, it wasn't a post show; it was as you were leaving. You would see some things about sort of Great American Road Trips that was early on, but later it was about tigers and saving the tigers and things like that. Rawr. <laughs> uh, while the universe of energy featured no post-show on site, as I said, there was an extensive exhibit about energy featured in Communicore, the energy exchange. Exxon had felt that there needed to be follow-up information for guests beyond the pavilion's presentation. Early approaches were rejected by the company, which felt that they were too hard sell. Instead, Exxon wanted something entertaining that had an application of people's lives. So good for them. And so we got the Energy Exchange, a large collection of exhibits and interactive attractions. Encircling a kinetic energy sculpture were a series of displays depicting energy resources such as fossil fuels, nuclear, solar, and synthetic. Now, we'll save future discussion of this exhibit for another day, but looking back, it was really pretty extensive. I find myself wondering why we never spent more time there I remember the Computer Central interactive games vividly, but really have no memory of ever spending time in the energy exchange. I feel like we were so selective. I mean, again, it's like what I said about Trans Center. It's like forever we would mock it and just go through it and not look at anything because we were so on to the next thing. 
I feel yeah. like our community core experience is the same way where it's like we only did a few things for forever until they were about to go away and we started to do some and then it went away. And it went away. I know. I just looking at the stuff, there was stuff in energy exchange that I either wasn't aware or had forgotten had been there. Mm-hmm. A lot mm-hmm. of interactive stuff and a lot yeah. of stuff that I th- would have appealed to me, I think. But first, I guess we were just always on the go, always on the go. I mean, when on the you go, only have, maximizing. You know, yeah, when you only have a day or two, you got. It's a go shame. I mean, that's part of the experience too. I thought that Communicore stuff is just so well designed in most most cases. We'll talk about it more later. Yeah. Touch some oil shell, the rock that burns. Anyway, the Universe of Energy was dedicated on Monday, October fourth, nineteen eighty two. 1996, it received a massive overhaul, becoming Ellen's Energy Crisis, soon to be renamed Ellen's Energy Adventure, which saw a complete replacement of the show's film segments with a storyline featuring Ellen DeGeneres and Bill Nye, as well as cosmetic changes to the primeval diorama and the horrifying Ellen animatronic as well. The pavilion (laughs) sponsorship with Exxon, which by then had become ExxonMobil, lapsed in 2004 and the attraction closed for good in So that wraps up our episode on energy. It really makes the world go round. And man, I can smell that dinosaur landscape right now, Michael. I feel like I'm there. Absolutely. Smell the the musty air of the <laughs> smell it, sir, and probably actual must. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's it really takes you back and Thankfully, this one was around so long that we really got to soak it up a lot. Man, I would say Universe of Energy, worst dump-off location of any Future World Pavilion. They really put you in the corner there, didn't they? Yeah, they really did, just out in the alleyway, really. Yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, uh, needed that needed that post-show, needed that, uh, I don't know, unwind area. Yeah. It just kind of boots you out into the nothingness some tiger pictures and then you're just out in the alley (laughs) exactly but we'll forgive them for that and we miss you know just miss these kind of giant spectacles and uh you you would you you could get on pretty quickly and i mean unless it was like right after the the park opened and yeah uh, get in and you just sort of settle in yeah get comfy enjoy yourself i mean this was one where you really could just like uh, you know i'd try and get like far away from where everybody else was in their cars because they had these enormous cars i'd try and get as far away from everybody else as possible and just kind of like it just just cozy you just kind of scrunch down and enjoy yourself on that one yeah you could just you could just sit there and settle in for a long ride because it was so long and and wonderful absolutely 
bring it back or don't but you probably won't anyway we miss you and uh yeah we got more epcot on the way you know we, we still gotta work our way through this parking lot michael and Absolutely. talk to some folks uh, we're gonna keep it going you know, stay in epcot for a little while longer we're we're winding down uh, but more adventures to discover discovery it's disney's discovery park now. it is it is that is their brand essence uh, Michael, if I wanted to find out more about the Universe of Energy, maybe see a slideshow of some stuff, maybe see some videos that I mentioned in my segment. Uh, is it just too bad? Or is there something people could do to you know, double-click on these details and find out more? Well, uh, if you're looking at the latest episode of Epcot Minutes, it will tell you... <laughs> Absolutely. There is a way, there is a lucky group of people who is going to get a long evening full of Universe of Energy artwork and preview plans and video and all sorts of things. And those lucky people are our Patreon sponsors. Wow. Yeah. The, the elect. Absolutely. The few, the proud, the Patreon folks. Uh, yeah, join join our Patreon. It gets you packet of swag, gets you early access to episodes, gets you access to some other audio goodies, audio and video goodies, some rare documents from Disneyana, and uh, at uh, the silver level, of course, join our monthly live stream where we get together with a great group of people. Jeff and I do do our little presentation and then there's a wonderful chat full of great people and we have a really good time with all the regulars there in the chat it's always a good time jeff it is and you know we've compiled a lot of these live streams at this point and you can go back and watch them all you could see all kinds of secrets or silliness i mean there's a whole thing of easter parades we <laughs> recently did i mean come on what 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 do you need that was a good time. Yeah, I uh, often I'll see people say that uh, who are our backers that say, "Oh no, I missed the live stream," and I I say, you know, there it's still up there, and all the old ones are still up there. So when you sign up now, you get access to you know like twenty five old live streams. So that's hours and hours of fun. That's more than a day worth of fun. Yeah. Of, of shenanigans you can go back and check in on. So check it out. It's at patreon.com slash USA. Your donations are tax deductible and they are much appreciated. Absolutely. You help keep the, uh, yeah, we're riding on your sunshine now. <laughs> Absolutely. It's very true. Uh, so we thank you for that. You can also email us at podcast at progresscityusa.com. We're always looking to fill that mailbag so we can open that up, find out more. We think, you know, Fox, Fox, hit up the mailbag. Mm -hmm. Give us these sweet Stratton and Christopher songs. So uh, we all benefit. And uh, of course, we're on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Jeff G. Crawford. Michael's at Progress City USA. You can always reach out to us there. We'd love to hear from you ideas for new shows we're getting to the end of this epcot thing what are we gonna do what do you want to hear we're yeah, all would ears. love to hear love yeah. to hear what you think we should do people you want us to interview we love the interviews in the town hall so 
plenty of uh yeah plenty of grapes on the vine that help us connect the dots here we'd love to hear from you uh anything else to say before we put on stratton and christopher to play us out here michael <laughs> no just thanks for listening and thanks to all the backers and uh, we appreciate it and hope to hear more from you in the future all right we're gonna leave you with this uh, what, what is this song called michael this is, well, I think apropos to our podcast and apropos to everything we've been talking about, the Stratton and Christopher tune titled Best of Memories. Best of Memories. That sounds very suiting. So we're going to let them play us out, as they say, and we will see you next time right here. Take care. tell you a few things you mean to me Is it possible you've lived your life to become my memories Remember my school days Somehow you were never content Don't ask me how to spell or explain it Look it up, know what Webster meant And I remember like it was yesterday Riding my bike with four safe wheels You gently forced the removal of two And proved it was no big deal In later years I discovered The woman who taught me so Had never even rode a bike herself Tell me mama, how did you know? Shudder to think you'd ever be ashamed of anything I chose to do. So, Mama, never wonder if you've lived a life that's pleased. Mama, you're the greatest, you're the best of memories. And isn't it funny, the older I get, wiser you become I wish I'd known you better years ago that I'd have been a better son and when the day comes and I know it must when you're no longer here I'll cherish the thoughts the prayers and the love and the memories that we've shared mama and what I am, thanks lovingly to you I shudder to think you'd ever be ashamed of anything I chose to do So mama, never wonder if you've lived a life that's pleased Mama, you're the greatest Mama, you're the greatest Mama, you're the greatest you're the best of memories. They call it progress, progress. Our time is at an end. We'll be seeing you again next time. And progress, progress. Meet in progress.
You've been listening to the Progress City Radio Hour, created by the folks at ProgressCityUSA.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Progress City USA. If you want to contact us, please write podcast at ProgressCityUSA.com. The Progress City Radio Hour is recorded at Arbor Ridge Studios in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, on the web at ArborRidgeStudios.com. The title theme was composed by Jeff Crawford, whose music can be found at JeffCrawfordMusic.com. Please join us again soon for another Progress City Radio Hour. They call it Progress.